We'll be looking in uh, the book of Acts, chapter 12, looking at the last uh, verse of chapter 12, and then continuing on to, into chapter 13. We're, looking, we're doing an extended survey of Paul's life and his letters. At this point uh, in the text, he is still called Saul. Um, we come to a significant point today in Saul's life, a significant point in the book of Acts, and a significant point in church history. We'll be reading about the beginning of the first missionary journey, uh, the first of three over a period of about 15 years. We'll be reading about a team that was sent out from the church at Antioch and a shift in evangelism from a basically a spontaneous individual, don't know whether spontaneous is the right word, uh, individuals um, uh, reaching out uh, with the gospel to a, an intentional planned team uh, with, uh, that are sent out to reach uh, the Gentiles. That, uh, those sorts of expeditions are now called missions. And the people are called missionaries who do that. They weren't at that point, but we've come to call them that. Here in Acts, we see facts that are documented. We not only read about the travels of this team and their exploits, we will notice supernatural events along the way. We observe their methods and identify principles of missions. Saul's leadership becomes increasingly evident uh, during this first journey that we'll be reading, reading about today. And uh, the fulfillment of the Lord's uh, words to Ananias of Damascus. Remember the Lord said to him, he, that is Saul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. And later it was said of these men that they had turned the world upside down. So let's pick up the text in Acts chapter 12 and verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they took along with them John, whose name was Mark, whose surname or his other name was Mark. Now, as as a way of reminder, why were they returning from Jerusalem? Well, they had, if you remember the end of last week, they had gone to Jerusalem to take famine aid and deliver that to the church in uh, Judea. This was a predominantly Gentile church in Antioch sending aid to the predominantly Jewish uh, church in uh, Judea. So they were returning from that to Antioch of Syria. Now Antioch was in Syria at that point, the province of Syria. The Antioch is in, in Turkey now, 
And indeed, we have heard about it in the last year because of the, the earthquakes that have occurred there and uh, the devastation um, in that part of Turkey. When Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, they took along with them John Mark, who was the cousin of Barnabas and uh, the writer of the second gospel, the gospel of Mark, obviously. Chapter 13, verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So we have a list of uh, the men who were in that church. This was a church of Jews and Greeks. We remember that from last week. And this church has been established for a period of time, probably not too long, too much longer than a year, but perhaps longer. We really don't know. But we know that it was at least a year because Barnabas and Saul spent a year there uh, teaching and uh, uh, teaching a great many people in that church that was assembled in Antioch. There had also been the time that it was uh, established prior to that. And then Barnabas had gone to Tarsus to get Saul and bring him back. And that, then we have the time that uh, they uh, spent in going down to Jerusalem with, with the famine aid and then returning. So... Was it sometime between a year and two years? Was it maybe longer than that? At least it wasn't a church that had been there for a long, long time. This was a fairly young church. But even in that young church, there were prophets and teachers, it says. Um, two groups of men. We have five names listed. Notice that Barnabas is listed first and Saul was listed last. And this uh, may have been um, an indication of the rank that was there. Saul being really the last one to arrive there, even though he had been there for over a year. But uh, uh, we don't know. Perhaps that's true. What's the difference between prophets and teachers? Prophets are men who proclaim uh, the word of God. They may have received a direct revelation from the Lord. They uh, declare what truth they have, often foretelling the future, but also uh, what we would call forthtelling or just proclaiming what the word of God was. So prophets weren't always predicting the future or telling what would happen in the future. But they're proclaimers. And then the teachers more, have more of a role of instructing and explaining what the word of God is. So we see that there uh, were five names listed. Some people have thought that um, Simeon here was uh, that Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross 
of Jesus. Some people think that Lucius of Cyrene was actually Luke, uh, the, the beloved physician. We don't know. That's just speculation, but I thought I'd throw that out. But there was multiple leadership, as we can see here, in the early church. And one commentator um, that I read said, it's a great error to expect that one man could possess all of the gifts necessary to lead a church. And from the very beginning, there was always multiple leadership. That's the picture that we see in the scriptures and the pictures that here in this church, um, we follow that, uh, that picture. Verse 2, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The ministry here is service. These men were serving the Lord. Notice that the service is not just the church, but they are serving the Lord. And there was evidently a serious, perhaps prolonged time that they were involved in this uh, ministry. And uh, so thus, be, to give un, undivided attention to the spiritual matters that they were considering, they were fasting so that they would not be distracted by other things. During that period of time, the Holy Spirit spoke and called two men, selected them by name, and appointed them to a specific task. It doesn't say right here. Um, uh, it, it must have said there, but it, it doesn't say in this verse what the work was. But they were... Uh, notice that the direction was to men who were already serving. The Holy Spirit is unlikely to, um, to choose somebody randomly off of the street, is unlikely to, to choose somebody who just um, infrequently attends uh, meetings of the assembly. But the Holy Spirit works in the lives of people who are already serving. And so we would suspect that if he's calling somebody to a particular work, that it will be somebody who's already um, involved and um, busy in involvement in the church. We would notice here as well that in order for the Holy Spirit to guide the church, the church and particularly the leaders of the church, you need to be sensitive to the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sensitive to what he's saying and ready to obey what that is. You know, it says that the Holy Spirit uh, spoke. This reminds us that the Holy Spirit is a person, not just an influence, um, and that the Holy Spirit here is communicating. We don't know precisely how he communicated, perhaps through one or more of the prophets. Um, but, and the Holy Spirit leads by a variety of means. I'm tempted to think that it wasn't said specifically the means that the, Lord, that the Holy Spirit used here to direct them, because if that had been uh, recorded here, we would have thought to ourselves, well, this must be the only way the Holy Spirit can lead. 
But that is not true. And so there isn't, it doesn't say specifically what that is. But he did call Barnabas and Saul uh, to be separated for the work to which I, the Holy Spirit, had called them. Three and four. Verses three and four. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands upon them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Uh, the sending of Barnabas and Saul uh, with fasting and prayer and laying on of hands. Laying on, on of hands, is, uh, it does not confer any special power and it doesn't uh, ordain somebody to a particular position. It, it, doesn't, it should not lift people up in our eyes that, that uh, their hands are... are that hands are laid on them. I kind of thought maybe that if all four of the young people going to Ecola were here today, they might have stood up here and the elders would have laid their hands on them because it's an, it, the idea is in laying hands is identifying. We identify with you and with the, the, what you are going to do. And... Um, we recognize that the Holy Spirit is leading you and we want to encourage you. We want to, to, you to know that we're behind you. And, it's, and it says here indeed that was what occurred. They laid their hands on them and uh, incorrectly it says that they sent them away. Uh, if that's what your version says, you could cross it off because it, it, they were released to what the Holy Spirit had called them to. The, the church does not send people. The Holy Spirit calls people and the Holy Spirit sends workers out to do a work. Having... Uh, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. They're sent out by the Holy Spirit. The church, in fact, the, the verb there mean, means that they released them. And it is a fact that they're, they're going, when somebody is going from our place, like the four that are going to Ecola there, the church is releasing them to what the Holy Spirit is leading them into. Um, so there's a team um, of, mi of missionaries here, uh, and it's a team, this is analogous in my mind to the fact that there is multiple leadership uh, of the church. There's also multiple individuals involved in, in the mission work, and uh, I don't believe that's been taken, I know that's not been taken as a as a principle, always in missions, but uh, we need to have others that we're working alongside, whether it be in the local church or whether we're going out to missions. Going alone opens you up to all sorts of um, imbalances and possibilities for getting yourself in trouble. Well, the 
the missionaries um, went uh, went down first to uh, Seleucia, which is the port that is closest there to Antioch, and then they sailed from there to Cyprus, the island. Um, they went to Cyprus first. Well, who was from Cyprus? Barnabas was from Cyprus. Uh, he was, um, Barnabas was his nickname, of course, as we heard last week, that uh, Joseph is his, is his given name. He's a Levite. He was from Cyprus. Uh, there were other men from Cyprus, as well as men from Cyrene, which uh, would be modern-day Libya, um, and uh, they who had come there and planted that church. We can see that from back in the previous chapter that we looked at in chapter 11. And so they went to Cyprus first. Verse 5 says that they, when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their assistant. I've mentioned that already. They had It was a team, and John was with them. They began at Salamis. Now, Salamis is no longer a town in Cyprus, so if you try to look up on the map to find Salamis, which I did, I tried to Google it, and uh, that it's not there anymore. But uh, the, the nearest town to where we believe Salamis was is Famagusta. What do we know about that? That's where Jerry and Sarah are. And uh, so it's, these events are happening near there. And they, began, and they were following patterns that we can find in the book of uh, Acts, in Acts 1.8, where... Um, the, they were told that to go to their Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so they're somewhere now between Samaria and the end of the earth, following that pattern that the, that the Lord had directed. And there's another pattern in uh, Romans 1.16. Uh, uh, we're not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to... Uh, for salvation to, the, to those who believe the Jews first and then the Greeks. And so what did they do first? The first thing they did was to go to the synagogue, uh, the synagogues that were present there already. There, were, there was a Jewish influence all over the, the Middle East, and they had, uh, they had established synagogues. That's where... Barnabas and Saul went first. Picking it up at verse 6. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. They went across the island to Paphos from east to west. 
Uh, and it, in that time, they found they had opportunity and opposition. They had opportunity with the, even with the proconsul, an intelligent man who was seeking to hear the word of God. And this, this man, Sergius Paulus, was uh, being the proconsul. He was the highest-ranking Roman official on uh, the island there. So they had a real opportunity, but there was opposition as well because there was a sorcerer there, a false prophet, uh, Bar-Jesus would mean, the son of the Savior, the son of Jesus. Elemis um, means a wise man, a mag magician possibly having some demonic powers. He interfered with the ministry of Barnabas and Saul and intended to turn the proconsul away from belief in the Savior. It is interesting that there was, this isn't the first time, of course, that we see the influence of uh, false prophets or sorcerers, magicians. Peter had come up against one in uh, Samaria. And it is interesting if we look back and we might marvel that those people um, were so affected uh, that there was such a strong hold of superstition and uh, polytheism in their day. And yet, because it seems very strange to us, it's because we live in America. But the vast majority of the world still lives with that, uh, with that truth situation of living in superstition and polytheism, not knowing who is God and being af afraid, really. The superstition makes people afraid. Verse 9, then Saul, who is also called Paul, ah, here it is, we've arrived at the time when we can call him Paul, right? I noticed that the last couple of weeks or the, that the men who stood up here have, have sort of said, Saul, Paul, well, you know who I mean, right? And uh, now we're getting to the point where we can, we can call him Paul, although Saul is used uh, a, a few times uh, in, the, in the chapters that follow. But we find out that his name is Paul. Now, Paul's a a Gentile name. Saul was his Jewish name, obviously a, a given name, given to him by his family. We don't know where he got the name Paul. Um, was it a nickname that people called him? Was it a name he chose for himself because it was kind of like Saul? Uh, we don't really know. Uh, we know what Paul means. It means small or little. And so uh, maybe it's like he got the nickname because he was small. Shorty. Anybody ever know anybody named Shorty? Uh, at Emmaus, the, uh, the, the man, Shorty Crib, do you remember Shorty? And, uh, but was it a nickname? We don't know. Let's continue reading. It was called Paul. Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that is Elemas, 
and said, oh, full of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell upon him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. So there's a confrontation now with uh, Elymas. Precipitated, no doubt, by his opposition of, uh, of his opposition toward the gospel and toward Barnabas and Paul. Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. It's probably important here that we make sure we understand what the filling of the Holy Spirit is or what, what this is. This is not the same as the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which takes place when someone exercises faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and is indwelt by the, whole, by the Holy Spirit. All believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Filling here is different. We see that, in, that the deacons in chapter 6 of Acts, uh, and Stephen especially, and even Barnabas are described uh, as being full of the Holy Spirit. At Pentecost, uh, the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit when they spoke then in languages that they had never studied. And uh, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke to uh, leaders and elders of the nation of Israel. Uh, other, we could go on. Ephesians uh, chapter 5, though, I think is important in looking at this. Chapter 5, verse 18 where it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. So do, and, and I believe what it's saying there, don't allow alcohol to control you, but be controlled by the Holy Spirit. In other words, be sensitive and be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is leading you to do. And so here, Paul was sensitive to the Holy Spirit and obedient by a confronting Elemas at this point. And filling with the Holy Spirit, by the way, is associated in every instance in the New Testament with uh, a, a speaking ministry or, or another ministry that um, occasionally, almost always, with a speaking ministry. So you'll find that somebody or a group was filled with the Spirit and spoke or filled with the Spirit and preached the gospel. Paul um, looked intently and spoke. He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he spoke. The Holy Spirit compelled him to say something in particular. And Paul clarified the true identity and the character of Elymas by saying he was not wise. His name may have meant wise man, but he was not wise. He was full of deceit and fraud. He was not a true prophet. He was perverting the ways of the Lord. He was an enemy of righteousness, and he was not the son of the Savior. He was a son of, devil, of the devil. 
Paul uh, announced what the Lord was going to do. Uh, it was not Paul, but the hand of the Lord that was uh, coming upon him to cause blindness. And Paul was merely announcing that. It's interesting that here a man who was spiritually blind was then struck with physical blindness. And I think Paul was remembering himself what had occurred in his life on the road to Damascus when the Lord struck him with blindness for a time before his conversion. And perhaps he was even hoping that this was what was going to happen with Elymas. This man would be blind for a while, but, he would, but, but this would be the point at which this man would be converted to the Lord. Even though he had been in opposition uh, to the gospel. So perhaps Paul was looking for a similar outcome for Elymas. Elymas has been said to be a picture uh, of Israel unwilling to accept Jesus, uh, seeking to prevent others from coming to him, and then judicially blinded for a time. Then the proconsul believed, it says in verse 12, the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The proconsul believed in spite of Elymas, in spite of the opposition. He saw a miracle. Miracles were validation of the message and the messenger. And he was especially, we want to notice that he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Doesn't say what that is in this, in this passage, but I think we can glean that from other passages. But before we do, notice that the proconsul was a uh, Gentile, indeed the highest ranking, we said, highest ranking Roman on the island of Cyprus. So the gospel was for the Jew. They had gone to the synagogues first. It was for the Jew and the Gentile. The gospel is for uh, the aristocrat or the one, in, the one highest ranking person and for the people. Well, the, I said we look at the teaching of the Lord. And I think we can, look, we can see elsewhere, especially I'm fond of the teaching of the Lord in Romans, as, as Paul put it in there, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Jew and Gentile, it says there. Um, wages of, of sin is death. That means that when you sin, you earn death. And on payday, you receive what you earned. The free gift of God is eternal life. A free gift. A gift that comes from God because of the riches of his grace. It's unearned, undeserved, unaffordable, unobtainable, except one way. One way. 
It's available to all who will receive Christ as Savior through simple faith. We confess our sins to God and believe His promises to us. It's a a certain and sure gift because it depends entirely on the faithfulness of God. God took the initiative to reach the lost. He sent his son to die for sin on the cross and he commissioned us, his children, to evangelize the world. He providentially equips, sends, guards, guides, and provides for those who will go out. And the Lord Jesus Christ said to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth workers. The harvest is ripe. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it talks about the fact that of us being in Christ those and being a new creation, those who uh, have personally received Jesus as his or her Savior, each one is then uh, in Christ or identified with Christ. Our identity is in Christ. We are not our. We are not our. We are not our own but we belong to him. And we don't live for ourselves, but we live for him. That means all things have passed away and become new, and all things are now of God. We're reconciled to God through Christ, but we also have a ministry of reconciliation to take. We are ambassadors for Christ. And God, through us, pleads with the lost world And we speak on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. And that's what my version says. I guess a modern phrase would be, get right with God. We need to take that message to the world. We are, um, we're commissioned to do that. Some of us are in a special way. selected and called by the Holy Spirit to go out. And even though we're not, we may not be among those numbers, we still have a commission to go to a lost world and a commission to begin here in, in Yakima, in our Jerusalem, and, and then spread out to surrounding areas and some to go even to the ends of the earth. Is the Lord calling you to that? I think that if the Lord is calling you, I think he's also saying something to the elders about it. I don't think the Lord is going to call you, just like we said before, the men who were called by the Holy Spirit were were, uh, busy in ministry of service for the Lord, elders have the responsibility to be keeping an eye out for those who are already busy in ministry 
And maybe, maybe they're the ones who the Lord is calling to go. The elders will know it. The individual will know it. The Lord is calling. It's time to go. Maybe, you're, maybe that's what's happening in your heart. Maybe, maybe you've, for the first time today, understood or been impressed with your need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Personally, you, you're not saved because you come and sit in this meeting this morning. You're not saved because your mom or dad or your grandmother and grandpa are saved. You're saved because you personally have seen your sin and your need for a Savior, and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that you impress upon our hearts in different ways um, what you want to do through us and uh, through uh, those that we are associated with. We pray that you would be clear in each person's heart before they leave this place this morning what it is you have for them, what you want them to do. We thank you that you are able to do that you're able to equip and send and lead and protect us and supply all of our needs. Thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.